Episode 15 of Up From The Ashes, Bad Sci-Fi TV, Big Sci-Fi Ideas. Today we're looking at episode 14 of The Star Lost, Farthing's Comet, starring Kira DeLay, Gay Rowan, and Robin Ward, with guest stars Edward Andrews and Linda Sorensen, directed by Ed Richardson, written by Douglas Hall, and today's special guest host, Greg Mitchell. All right. Well, welcome, Greg. I'm glad to um, bring you in. This is I'm glad it worked out because it wasn't going to. And then right. I messed the schedule up for some other things and it worked out perfectly to bring you in. So, right. Yeah. I was I was excited to give this experiment a go. So, yeah, we are here to talk about the Star Lost. And the first thing I want to do is just introduce you before we get into it. And then I want to find out what is your history with the Star Lost and uh, the way this podcast works is we're taking a look at uh, the episode episode by episode and this is the third to last episode of the series so we are on the on the home stretch and yeah and I I mean we'll talk about the episode but uh, sometimes I apologize to my guests because it's so bad. Sometimes I'm excited because it's so bad it's good. Sometimes it is actually pretty good, and and sometimes it's like this episode, which well, we'll talk I about. have a I mean I have a history of of bad movies and bad television, so I'm I'm always up to check something out. So well, that's why I wanted you though, because I know I've seen posts from from Facebook with you where you've talked about bad tv movies you've seen and things like that and i'm just like ah, i bet and and i was i'm looking through my feed of, of, of my facebook friends and I'm like who oh who yeah i bring in and, and you were one where i'm like ah this he'd be good so again, yeah i'm glad it worked out so go ahead and introduce yourself you are an author you're a screenwriter <clears throat> yes. and uh so yeah let us know what what if what do you do what are you uh up to whoo okay well my name is greg mitchell um i i wrote the coming evil trilogy many years ago and I still keep using that as my handle and uh you know my my internet presence but since then I've written more novels uh I've written a couple novels in my Hitman series I've done a couple novels in my Rift Jump series of um teenage runaways that are traveling the multiverse and getting into trouble but most people I think probably know me from writing some sci-fi channel movies speaking of bad TV and bad movies I was the screenwriter for Snakehead Swamp about, uh, I call it the greatest movie ever made about genetically enhanced voodoo killer fish. <laughs> and uh, I wrote Zombie Shark. I helped out on uh, Mississippi River Sharks and Ozark Sharks. So I'm well versed in uh, cheesy uh, cheesy TV. Yeah, and I, and I have to be honest, I haven't seen... Well, they're all your... available on Tubi right now. If you oh, go, okay. Yeah. Actually, I should have asked ahead of time so I could have been prepared. Yeah. And... yeah, I just found out myself. They're actually all. I think all four of them are on Tubi right now. So that's pretty yeah. bad. All right. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. So, um, yeah, and we're about to dive into some bad TV. But mm-hmm. uh, the one thing as we're talking about this is. There was a little bit of a stretch trying to find the big sci-fi ideas behind this one. Um, it just, it didn't lend itself to the big sci-fi tropes. It does go into sci-fi tropes, but it's not the big ones. It's it's pretty simple, actually. I mean, this is kind of just a disaster waiting to happen, and they have to stop the disaster from happening. True, but you could you could maybe pull from that that it's man's hubris, right? <laughs> <laughs> that it's like in our pursuit of our personal obsessions, we place others in jeopardy. Well, and you definitely have the scientist character who's doing that. Right. And and that is interesting. That trope of uh, the scientist who plays God is is just a very, I mean, it's broad. It's, it's right. out there. It's out there a lot, um, especially when you consider like, I mean, consider how good science has been for us. You know, without science, we wouldn't be talking right now. Right. The way we're able to talk, you know. Right. Um, but then there's always that just danger that lurks beneath the surface. But this guy, he just wants to see things. <laughs> and right. He's just he just curious. wants to explore. Yeah. Which, you know, 
my question was, but aren't we trying to get somewhere? Isn't that the whole point of the show? Is yeah. that we're trying to like yeah. get somewhere for survival? So we'll get into the plot in just a moment yeah. here, but there is a subset of episodes of this show that the question could be asked, like, is this breaking the show? Is this okay. is this doing something that takes that high concept and renders it moot almost? And or is it just ignoring the high concept uh, altogether? And I don't know if this episode is ignoring the high concept altogether, but the scientists we're talking about, he was definitely ignoring the high concept. Like he, right. he knows there's trouble, Absolutely. but he's more interested in, I'm going to look through a telescope. Right. And, and what's that over there? Let's, yeah. let's divert uh, <laughs> all power to go over there and look at that. What little power we have, let's use it so I can get a better view right. of the comet. And, right. Yeah. So let's jump into it then. Uh, we do start with a very, very tropey sci-fi thing. We start with dramatic music and shaky camera work. Right. And, and the can shaky you not cam- hear the footsteps? <laughs> I feel like you can hear them like like stepping in place as they're uh, you know being jostled by the impacts. I mean, I don't know. I, I know this. It's, it's a tale as old as time. You want to show a spaceship is shaking around... <laughs> You don't have to shake the spaceship. You just shake the camera. Shake you know? the camera. And have them stumble around a bit. Yeah. 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 Uh, although it would be interesting to see if they ever did try and build like a, an entire bridge uh, set on hydraulics that actually would, right. would move around. But right. Yeah. No, they were, they're shaking. The camera's shaking. They're acting. It's better acting than when they were blowing down a corridor with high velocity winds which was just them rolling against the wall. I did and, not see that episode. Yeah, that was, you know, you haven't, oh, we, we didn't go there. You haven't seen any of the episodes, right? Right. I yeah. had not even heard of this show at all until you approached me about, okay. <laughs> about doing this. I was yeah. completely, uh, completely fresh. So, yeah. And the question at the end will be, will you stay completely fresh? Is this as far as you're going to go in, in this show? And, uh, we will okay. we'll get there, and I'll ask you. But yeah, so we start with the dramatic shaky work, uh, shaky camera work. Tells us the ship is shaking, and the trio thinks we're under attack. So Devin, Rachel, and Garth, they think they're under attack because they do know about aliens. There is an alien out there. They've had contact with a couple different alien races, and so even though they aren't the most knowledgeable people about just the ship in general, they do have vague awareness of that. And so that at least, you know, makes sense. Uh, but they, the computer, when they talk to the computer, he cannot be of assistance because it's a security thing. And the answer is the information they're looking for is a security thing. And the only person who can really talk to them about this is, is either from security or from astronavigation, from astronomy. And that, so the person they're looking for is Dr. Linus Farthing, the chief astronomer. And he's the only one available to explain what's happening, but he's basically put himself on do not disturb. And so the computer cannot call him. So they cannot disturb him with a call. Instead, they have to go to him. And so the computer gives them a map to the astronomy module, which is not a dome. It's just a module. And they go and they find Dr. Linus, where he and his assistant, Dr. McBride, they have a model of the ship, which is actually... That's that's also pretty cool. I was really excited to see that. Just you could see how big the actual model is that they're using for shooting, and you know they just bring it in and hey, set dressing, and they don't have to pay extra for anything there like that. Uh, and they're actually using that to kind of track damage to the ship. Uh, the trio lets themselves in. The doctor wants them out of there, and the phrase he uses is, "What I say goes, and I say you go," and. <laughs> There's a Classic. couple lines like that in this episode. I don't know if they actually come from our writer or if they come from the the showrunner who um, I think is Norman. I can't remember Norman's last name, but I'm not sure who it came from, but whoever it was. There are some, some, some clever lines. They argue with him that the Ark needs his help, and he starts to argue with them to get out of there, but then he gets so enthralled with the idea of telling them what he's up to that he can't help but share with them what he's seeing. And he says something that I'm a little confused by. He says, come here, my dear to, to Rachel. 
He says, I will show you a sight that no woman aside from McBride has ever seen. <laughs> and I'm just thinking to myself, why are you making that emphasis that no woman aside from this other person? <laughs> so, right. so someone else has seen it. You're right. the second. That's something special. He could have also said no person aside from me and McBride has True. ever seen. You're the third person in the literal universe who's seen this. Um, only two people have literally seen it, but I just found it an interesting little, like, lots well, of detail. I don't know if they needed to, <laughs> to give, uh, but it definitely kind of shows, if not his own attitude toward women, uh, the, the 70s attitude toward, right. toward women. Right. Although McBride, she is knowledgeable and she is a character who is competent and uh, definitely knows what she's doing. They take turns being in charge of some of the things that go on later on. Uh, but Rachel pretty much is there just to be there for this episode. She's given a job to do and then doesn't actually even get to do it. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that later. But anyway, Linus, happy to share the science. They're approaching a... <laughs> I don't understand all the details here. I'm pretty sure none of this is scientifically accurate. Um <laughs> They are approaching a comet clouds nucleus. And so I don't know if the comet cloud is meant to be the tail I behind think so. the comet. That's how I read it was that they were basically flying up the tail of the comet. And yeah. all the debris breaking off is hitting them in the face. And I, and I don't know all the details of like when the Oort cloud was first hypothesized and all that kind of thing, because every single search I did to try and find out is a comet cloud, a thing just brought up the Oort cloud, which is that, um, way, way, way distant, far away, uh, potential debris around our solar solar system where comets supposedly might come from. Mm. And it's, uh, it's something we can't observe because it's so far away and the material it's supposed to be made up of is so small, but it's outside of the orbit, even of, of Pluto. And, but every single search I'm looking for, like, is there a such thing as a comet cloud just brings up that thing. And that's clearly not what they're talking about here. And I wondered also if maybe that referring to the tail as a cloud was something scientifically accurate back then, right. where, you know, cause they would have seen comets obviously for, you know, centuries, but, um, yeah. So I, I just wasn't sure. It just sounds so weird. <laughs> yeah. But they are definitely, I mean, you are correct as far as what your, what you thought was happening. They were cl- flying into and up the tail and they actually ended up in the eye of the storm, so to speak, where they're just kind of in the, this empty space, uh, within the tail, but bottom line is they're being bombarded by particles and the defense systems are meant to keep out huge big dangers not these tiny little pieces of danger that are flying at them from this from this comet and yeah so they just they're like that's great but we don't want to talk about that we want to talk about the real problem with the arc the arc is off course we need to get the arc back on course you can help us and Linus says, well, you know, nothing can be done to save the Ark. We're all going to die. It doesn't matter. So so we might as well look at something pretty while we're yeah, yeah. going to the grave, right? Exactly. And then he, he, he literally says, did you know I'm the first astronomer to ever see this? And then uh, Garth says, well, that's like saying you're the first man to look down the barrel of a gun. And someone's <laughs> holding the gun. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know, you're not wrong, Garth. You're, you're not wrong. Uh, what is nice about this is we do find out some world building here. There are the defenses that the ship has and it wards off, you know, meteoroids and that kind of thing. Um, but it's, it's just too much with the comet right now. And Dr. Linus has known about the comet for years and they confront him because they start to wonder, did he do something to bring us closer to this comet? And he did, he did. He fired some auxiliary astronomy navigational reactors for just a second, but it was enough to put them more off course than they already were. Right. Uh, to look at the comet and get a closer look. And they think this is it. This is what we're looking for. This could save the arc. But then they are hit by 
some big impact from something. And Dr. McBride reports that there are fissures reported in some domes. And it's very bad. It's very, very bad. And it's bad enough we're going to cut the commercial right now. Right. Okay. So that is act one. So thoughts. We already talked about the hubris of man. But right. what are your thoughts so far? Well, again, having not experienced this show before, I mean, I, I did like a quick dive, like, just like, what am I even, <laughs> I did a quick search of just, what is the, the premise of the show? And so I was struck by, I mean, there's not a lot of people awake on the ship, like, that know it's a ship, right? Isn't that kind of the idea? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so- I was confused by things like the security guy needs an appointment before you can see him. It's like an appointment with who? No one's awake that actually knows what's going on, right? I mean, is it just these three main characters? Yeah, so the the and this is where the premise kind of gets broken a little bit in this episode and it really would have been so much better in some ways if they had just stuck with the original premise, which was these three characters are moving from dome to dome and all of the domes are unaware of each other right. because of an accident that happened 400 years ago. Well, it's like an internal Star Trek. Like you go world yeah, to world, exactly. but it's all within a one world. Exactly. And originally yeah. it was supposed to be kind of a, a that internal Star Trek where you, yeah, world, world to world, but also the fugitive where Devin and Rachel were running away from Garth, who was sent after them. And and so then you would have them, you know, sometimes have to help each other. They're causing problems for each other. But then they're going to each dome and discovering a new society and a new world. And eventually, you know, they're going to, after four seasons, figure out the solution to the problem and save the ship or whatever. Um, that was Harlan Ellison's original kind of mm. thoughts there. But... Instead, we get this weird situation where I, w- I really should go and do the math because I would say about half of the episodes don't even have to do with a dome. Right. And it has to do with something like this. So there's an episode, the Astromedics, where there's apparently doctors in spaceships flying around the domes and going where help is needed. And so I don't understand how can nobody know the greater premise of where they live if they're being visited by space doctors, you know, the right. final episode is called space precinct. There's apparently this security system and there's a whole group of people that just police the ship. Oh, wow. Now toward the beginning of the season, they're walking around and they'll find like people who have been, um, you know, just living in the hallways for generations and don't even know about what's going on. But then you get toward the end and you get these kind of, like I say, world breaking problems where it's like, okay, this, this just kind of expanded things in such a way that I don't understand um, how that can exist if you're still going to keep your premise of the ship is off course and these three people are supposed to go around and unite everyone or, or bring people to the, to the table to help everyone. Yeah, when I, I mean, when I first, I, w- I was watching it and as I was watching it, I was like, okay, hold up. I gotta go back and see what I'm even looking at here. But I didn't realize in the beginning that the three main characters weren't like crew members, that they were just randos that escaped their world Uh and stumbled into this. So I guess that begs the question, like, like who has been manning the ship this whole time? And like, do they know each other? I mean, everyone just seemed, this episode seemed like completely absorbed with their own problems. Like they're not even thinking about the thing. It's supposed to be no one is manning the ship. Okay. So they, in the first episode, go to the bridge, and there's skeletons from the crew. Okay, that tracks. died ages ago. And so then you have, well, the next episode is called Beehive, and we'll talk about that one you know, in the next episode. But there's actually a dome dedicated to bees and honey, and, but they know, they are totally aware that they are on the ship and that they are providing a service to the entire ship. And then, like I said, this, there's the police force, there's the, the medics. And so there's all these different people who are aware they're on a ship and are aware that there's a problem with the ship. And, but, but it's only to care. And at least for these guys, right. For right. McBride and Linus, that makes sense. And Linus is like, we're all going to die anyway. So like you said, might as well look at something pretty. You know? Right. <laughs> and, right. Um, but yeah. And so, yeah, these guys, it makes sense. 
these guys, it makes sense. But the, the police, the astromedics, although the astromedics, as I said in that episode, I think would make actually a fantastic concept for a TV show. Just a traveling ship of people who are like going to one medical problem after another, which actually uh, Picard season three kind of has that where Crusher and, and Jack Crusher are going around. Yeah, um, that's true. That's and, true. And so there's some, but I think that'd be a cool concept. Let's, you know, but it just kind of gets, it gets in the way of what the world setup was here. So, yeah. But like I said, this one kind of makes sense. So, all right. So act two, we went to the commercial break with Dr. McBride reporting that there are fissures reporting in these domes on the ship. It's horrible. It's, it's, it's going to go bad. And, it, it, but it turns out that the reports were exaggerated and it's not as bad as the reports said. And so <laughs> the resolution for the cliffhanger is literally, uh, it reminds me of the Muppets when, um, during the news report for one of the, on one of the Muppet show episodes, where he comes out and he's like, this just in a huge asteroid is heading towards the earth and will destroy life as we know it. And then just this just in, no, it won't. And that's literally <laughs> what happens here. She's back on and she says, you know, the arc is damaged, but not in danger. It's, it's okay. It's okay. So Linus is like, yeah, okay, great. He just keeps on observing and pushing buttons and things are calm. Now they're in the cone of the comet's cloud. But in three or four hours, they will be out of the comet cloud cone and it will be even worse than it was before. And this is where Devin, who comes from a world that's basically Amish, basically Mennonite, uh, he says, well, let's repair the reactors then. Let's repair the reactor that you used. And and then it gets dropped. Well, we do have an astronomy service craft. So they have a ship that can leave the ship. Requires three people, though, one to pilot, one to go out into space, and one to keep an eye on the umbilical cord. That's going to be Rachel's job. She's going to keep an eye on the umbilical cord. Maybe it's like a mother. It's a mother (laughs) uh, symbol, right? Actually, we could go deep with that. That that is very much the, yeah, because, I mean, it's literally an umbilical cord. Yeah. Uh, then McBride, who is an engineer, she can monitor them, tell them what to do to fix what they need to fix for the reactors. There's a lot of back and forth, but McBride comes and she's getting ready to go and spend time with her family before they all die. I, again, I don't know what this means. Does that mean that she's got people in the module? Does she come from a dome? I don't know, but she has family somewhere on the ship that she's, I'm going to clock out and go home now before we die. And, but they could try to convince her we can repair this thing. She says, no, we can't repair it. But Garth, again, from that Amish background, right. apparently knows we right. could bypass the firing device and, and do it now that way we could bypass it and then activate the reactors. Oh, it's a long shot. Whoever goes out might get destroyed by the reactors when they activate but we're just going to have to try it. So Linus agrees to go along with it. He's tired of arguing with Devin. Devin is going to go for the spacewalk. Garth is going to pilot the ship. Rachel is going to watch the umbilical cord, which apparently just, just to make sure it doesn't do tricks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we get spacewalk time. And he's, <laughs> and he's Amish. This is the first time. This is the first time he's seen space. Else, well, like, I mean, sort of. They've been around the ship, so they've seen outside. But he's not been out in it before. Now, they have. Has he? They have, oh, okay. yes. Okay. Uh, uh, twice now. Um, oh, okay. Uh, at least twice. They once went out with, uh, well, Walter, Walter Koenig, Chekhov, okay. yep. played an alien who took them out in his spaceship, I think. Um, and then they went out in the astromedic spa- spaceship as well. Okay. And, and so they, he's an old pro in it. They have seen the outside. They do understand space. They understand planets. They've had things explained to them. Um, in the original script, he actually finds a an airlock and finds a spacesuit, accidentally activates a voice recording telling you how to put the spacesuit on, puts the spacesuit on, goes out the oh. airlock, and, and goes outside into a dome that has been decompressed. and. Oh. Uh, and so he kind of learns about what's going on in that way. Uh, I'm kind of glad they didn't do that because it would have looked like this if they 
right <laughs> it would right, not right. have been great it would have been like a it would have been like a <laughs> tutorial video yeah yeah so originally Linus was very much against the plans but now he is very invested in giving them instructions he's walking Garth through how to fly that ship he's telling Rachel keep an eye on that umbilical cord <laughs> even though you and Garth are both looking out the same window and you can't see the umbilical cord anywhere else other than just directly in front of you through that window and he says maybe I'm getting old McBride but I'm beginning to care about those three <laughs> which uh, Okay. In the span of like five minutes, he's his cold heart has thawed, and now he loves humanity. I feel like the words on the page felt really good when they were being written. Yeah. But also being spoken didn't feel really good. Yeah. (laughs) So so Devin goes out, and he's fine until the ship is hit again, and now he's starting to spin around. And we're gonna cut to commercial because that's bad. That's our cliffhanger. Run so. to the bathroom, but get back soon because you got to yeah. see what happens to There's Devin. No DVR in 1973. No, no, that's right. That's right. So. <laughs> uh, any thoughts before we move on to Act Three about the? Now this is the this is the act where McBride like has a breakdown, right? Like where she goes out into the. Is that oh, here? That's or coming. That... That's coming. Okay. Next. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. I was like, wait, what? That, this is that was the thing. Uh. Yeah, just the, uh, I think the thing that struck me, I mean, really about the whole episode was the music, because music is, you know, you put music in movies to kind of guide the audience on the emotional journey, Mm -hmm. but the music in this, even throughout the most tense scenes, was so mellow that I was having a hard time, like, am I supposed to be, like... There was no, there was no like uh, buildup. There was no crescendo, right? So it's like I don't know what's, what is uh, a dire situation, and which is like meh, yeah. you know. It's all very, very chill, and that's probably the seventies talking, but it's all very chill music, straight it's, through. And I would say some of this music is plodding, like it just oh, yeah. plods. It's just like dun, oh, yeah, dun, yeah, dun, 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 dun. right. Uh, and then you have the the trumpets blaring, right? And, like you go, you cut to commercials, da, 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 da. and that's exciting, yeah, right? Yeah. And but the rest of it is like, oh man. It's so I think part you know? part of the problem is they're using a lot of stock music by this point, right? Um, right. But when they were they they bought some stock music, from what I understand, from some some company in Los Angeles. But then they also did have a composer who was composing some of the music. There is some good music sometimes in in the show. But I feel like this episode especially, I did notice that the the music doesn't feel like it fits the tone that they're trying to present. And I mean, the music at the beginning is just very much a when the ship was first shaking, it, it, it tries to bring you in like you're coming into the middle of the action right now. But then here, yeah, you're right. It's just there's theremin, there's oh, a yeah. bass player, and there's a little bit of a um, some sort of synthesizer going on as well. But it's just kind of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's, it doesn't do the greatest job guiding you emotionally. Yeah. No, yeah. no. And I didn't know if that was if that was indicative of the entire series. Like, I mean, I know this is pre-Star Wars. Mm-hmm. I mean, once Star Wars hit, that sort of like set the course for all, you know, for Buck Rogers and for all the different, you know, Battlestar Galactica, all those shows that came after of having that Star Wars feel. And and so by this being pre-Star Wars, it's like, is it mostly just interpersonal conflict like this without, like, outside invaders coming in and, like, high action? Is it more just conversation like this? Yeah, a lot of the show is is okay. this kind of um, inter- interpersonal conflict and ideological conflict. Um, and we get a little bit with Devin here in a, in a moment, actually, where his he speechifies a lot. He's he's he gives the Captain Kirk kind of a rousing. I'm gonna call you to action right now because you know you need to take action. And and Garth is then the guy who just jumps into action and runs into action. If there's physical conflict, it's usually going to be him running toward it. Um, and then Rachel is kind of the watches the umbilical cord. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she does get something to do every once in a while, but not not much. And now, and now I gotta ask this. In the original concept, 
they're like vying for her. Like she's originally betrothed to Garth, right? Yes, but they Is weren't vying. Still... There was not a, there wasn't a conflict in the sense of a love triangle. It was that um, Garth was betrothed to her, but wasn't necessarily in love with her. Okay. And so for Devin to take her away, it was really more about his family losing face and oh, his okay. family losing um, status. Um, and But really, that didn't last very long at all. And so Devin and Rachel are in a committed relationship. You wouldn't know it from right. a lot of the episodes. There it really is just it's there because it's that's just on paper in the character descriptions. That's what was there. But um, and, and then Garth was friends with Devin, but then Devin did all this stuff to cause problems for Garth. And now Garth is, he's out there. He wants to be at home, but he can't go back home. And because, because of the dishonor to his family or whatever. Okay. None of that came through in this episode. No. Okay. Okay. No. (laughs) So every once in a while, Garth does give lip service to the idea that he wants to go home and that he doesn't, he's, he's not necessarily married to the mission. But Devin is the one who's like driving this mission that we have to save the Ark. And and he's the one who found out about the drift and found out that they're going to, they don't know how far away the star is, but they're heading towards a star. And although in space, just a few degrees. Right. And it changes your course completely. That's happened. Right. <laughs> a few degrees into the comet. And so... Right. They're fixing the reactor to get away from the comet so they can go back onto this course that's going to take them to death. So, yeah. But, but do they have to? Could they not change the course to go all the way to where they need? I mean, do they have no concept of where they're going? They don't know where they're going. No. Okay. No. They, okay. And so to get them, that's something else that as but they, they go along. They can at least aim it away from the star. Right. right? That's what I'm saying is like. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Carry yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> So act three, we do find out this is interesting to me. I wish we knew more from what she's saying. Two domes were ruptured. So Mm. I don't know, you know, it could be an empty dome. It could be a fully civilized dome. It could be a dome that just has a couple different people in it. But two domes were actually ruptured. The Ark was able to seal them off. So the Ark is not in danger. But there was actually some consequences to the threat to the ship. Right. I was excited about that. We could have um, cut away to that and seen, you know, a crack open in the sky and uh, buildings crumbling and people falling upwards into the heavens, right? If they were able to get, you know, some stock <laughs> yeah. footage from another movie somewhere, yeah. maybe. Yeah. But, yeah. So Devin, he just works harder to get back into position. He gets into position. And Linus talks them through it. But this is where McBride leaves the monitoring station. And Linus is like, okay, they're in, they're in position. We're good. McBride, it's your turn. Tell them how to fix it. But she's gone. And he can't find her. She's just outside one of the other doors. Right. But not like outside she's the with door. She's within Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we get a speech from Devin. Come on. Come on, McBride. And then we get a speech from Rachel. Come on, McBride. And that convinces her to come back. And after her brief crisis, she returns. She gives Devin the instructions about how to fix the thing. And in the midst of this, McBride and Linus are arguing and bickering like an old married couple. They're not a married couple. Yeah, I got to say, that was my favorite part of the whole episode was the back and forth between, (laughs) between the couple there. It was a little annoying to me at first, although the punchline to their argument. Yeah. Yeah, I loved it. So I wrote some of it down. Um, he questions her. Is this going to work? If you give him the instructions and he does it, is it going to work? And she says, I know what I'm doing. A lot more than I can say for you sometimes. And then he says, well, just what is that supposed to mean? So the great Linus Farthing doesn't like to have this professional conduct question. How does it feel, doctor? Oh, McBride, there you go again. I tell you, anytime someone dares to question something you say or do, you fly through the fence, taking the question, turning it around and questioning the questioner. That is typical. (laughs) And then they're right back to business right after she says that. I'm just like, that sentence, first of all, it's a mouthful. I mean, I'm reading it and it's a mouthful, but the whole fly it through the fence, take the question, turn it around and question the questioner. It's typical. And then they give more instructions. He's doing the thing. 
and they get back to the bickering. She asks, do you resent being questioned? Of course not. I rather welcome questions, but I resent someone taking one of my questions and turning it around and using it as a point of attack. Ah, forget it. And she <laughs> says, no, I won't forget it. And he says, oh, that is enough. I will not engage in bickering, which is all that he has been doing. But then the end is cute where he just goes, McBride, you're infuriating. Yeah. And it's just like this moment where, okay, they've, they've gone through this. They've yeah, done yeah. this. Well, he says you're infuriating, but what he's really saying is, I love you and appreciate yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she looks at him and she gives him a look that basically says, me too. Yeah. Me absolutely. If, if you weren't 20 years older than me and I wasn't already married. <laughs> but, but was her family in one of the domes that was ruptured? It would have definitely upped right. the ante for the action. And that, that kind of gets into that question that we sometimes talk about where, what could you have done to fix this? And I feel like making it more personal. Right. Would right. Have. And that's, and that's what I missed the most, I guess. I mean, because I mean, in, even in the stuff that I write, like the sci-fi channel stuff, which is just inherently silly. I mean, we got, you know, exploding sharks and all kinds of things, but you always want to like, hook into what does this mean for the character and how is the how is the the larger issue playing into a personal crisis that they're going through at that moment and i didn't until they started bickering i felt like no personal uh attachment to anything that was happening it was just stuff happening yeah but when they started bickering it's like i mean i kind of feel like they became the main characters in that sense that it's like these are the people i'm invested in and want to see how this resolves for them and in a show like this, where you're going from place to place, or any kind of you know, love boat, fantasy right. island, Star Trek, where you have a main cast who they have their stories, but then you also have a place you're going to, a lot of the drama comes from that place and the, the right. that week's guest stars. And I just feel like, and this is a problem with especially the later scripts in this show, where you can tell the the influence of Harlan Ellison and the influence of some of the writers that he worked with toward the beginning before he quit the show has tapered off and faded away. And so you get things where it's just, well, we need some drama. And so we're going to have a character who like McBride, we're gonna have a character who she's just like, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. So there's drama because they need her for it to work, but there's no drama in the resolution of that. And that's one of the unfortunate things behind the star loss that I feel like has kind of kept it from becoming the cult classic that it could have been if there was just a little bit more going on behind the camera and a little bit more going on in front of the camera where, and we've talked about this a lot, but Dr. Who you have, right. especially the, those seventies I'm, I'm watching through the Tom Baker Dr. Who oh, yeah. right now. And I've, I've watched a number of episodes, but I've never watched through the whole thing. And so this is, I decided I'm just going to start with Tom Baker and then I'll move forward and backward from there. But um, there's some really bad special effects and some oh, really yeah, bad absolutely. filmography. But at the same time, you got things going on behind the camera with the script and in front of the camera with Tom Baker and some of the other guest stars where you're just like, it doesn't matter. Right. It's, it's doesn't look great, but it sounds great. Or, right. you know, it, but even then some of the model work is good, you know, and, um, and that's where here I feel like we, we don't have the skill of crafting characters that have a personal stake in what's going on. And especially in these final episodes that we're, we're getting into. So, and yeah. I feel that we have, I mean, I mean, I don't, you know, Kier, right. The main guy, Devin, mm-hmm. I, I know him being a horror guy. I know him from black Christmas and it's like that guy, I mean, I know he's in 2001, but I'll yeah, always yeah. know him as black Christmas guy. But it, it's like, I mean, he's an actor, you know? Yeah. He's like a guy who can do things. And I don't, I don't know if he has enough material that he could really, you know, get into. I, this is another situation. Some of the episodes are like this where I feel like a director who knows what he's doing and a writer who knows what he's doing could pull a lot more out of all three of our, our main characters are long they've had long careers now it wasn't always necessarily in dramatic television so uh garth he goes on to become a a game show host and 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 does other acting gigs but he's primarily known in canada for some of the game show hosting he was doing and stuff like that um and yeah it just 
it's unfortunate because here, here, here's another situation where you have, um, <laughs> taking us into the commercial break. There is all the excitement of a really slow bomb diffusing scene, but the ticking time bomb clock is 45 minutes. And they're like, well, we got 45 minutes. And then four minutes later, oh, we have 37 minutes now. And then suddenly, no, 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 because we need to do something to ratchet up the tension. Oh, I miscalculated. It's actually 10. Right. And we're going to use that to, instead of like the the act break before where we had, you know, an impact on the ship. You know, that could have been something to bring your ticking time clock down further because, oh, that thing that hit the ship knocked things out of out of whack. And now you guys got to really hurry up and get this done so we can get out of here before this dome implodes that my family is on. Because right. one more hit and my family, my family could die, you know, and those kind of things can be brought in instead of these um, arbitrary, you know, numbers. Right. <laughs> Just fluctuate right. and change because yeah. we need action. We need tension. Um, we actually come back from the commercial break and it's literally, <laughs> it's literally Dr. Linus just saying, I'm sorry. I'm not used to making stupid mistakes. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> okay. And then she says, eh, I wasted 12 minutes not doing anything. Right. You know, and it's, right. Okay. We all make mistakes. I walked out for 12 minutes. <laughs> yeah. So, it's fixed. Linus gets back in charge, but he's, he's telling him, you got to do everything slow. You're in space and there's no gravity. So you got to do it slow. And I just feel bad for Kier delay. Cause like you said, he was in 2001, right? Yeah. He's done spacewalks. Yeah. This is not <laughs> anywhere near what he did. Just, you know what? Five years earlier or whatever. And, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So they'll die if they don't get out in time or get back inside in time. That is, um, th- the clock has changed. They're down to 10 minutes, but they're not going to tell our main characters. If we don't tell them, they're not going to panic. And this way they can just take their leisurely pace and not make any mistakes. Um, but Rachel goes to do the one thing that she's going to do this episode. She's going to open the door, but she can't open the door <laughs> because the airlock seal won't pressurize. And so this is where I'm like, it won't pressurize. So he'll just go in the door. Cure right. delay can just go in the door. He's got a spacesuit on. It doesn't have right. to pressurize for him. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, he can just wait in the airlock, but no, instead <laughs> the way that they have to do this, they can't just go and drag him in because of time or something. They have to take that umbilical that they were using before. They have to make it, into a rod, which is what they right. did before. And they are going to fly the ship, pushing the rod ahead of them. And so the umbilical is, is going to push him into the, the spaceport or whatever. And that's how they're going to get him in. They're not going to drag him. They're not going to just let him go onto the depressurized airlock. They have to do this weird thing, but if they do it this way and they're not careful, the ship could run into him when they get in there and crush him. And they only have nine minutes now, five minutes have passed, but they only have nine minutes uh, now. Uh, But they don't know. They only have nine minutes. Right. They still think they have like, you know, 39. So his life support system is low. We got some more drama. Right. Until McBride says, but don't worry because there's backup oxygen in your suit. (laughs) that doesn't register and I did it that way on purpose. I created this and I'm just like, that is so dumb. But then you have another line that is just so meaningful because she says, I designed it that way. And he's, and, and Linus looks over at her and says, you, you designed these. And she says, yeah, I didn't know that. And it's just this little moment between them. That's like, again, the punchline is something kind of dumb, but it's not quite elevating it the way it could if it was a Doctor Who script from Douglas Adams or whatever that Tom Baker is reading the lines. But yeah, so but but she designs it. But <laughs> they don't know. Like they didn't send them out there only thinking they had ten minutes. So she sent them out there thinking they had forty-seven minutes, but mm-hmm. only giving him life support for you know. Yeah, it's like yeah, okay, and okay. and this is where. 
you know, again, fixing it and hindsight's 2020. If I've been writing it and you wanted something like that to happen, a puncture in the suit. Oh yeah. He has to fix the puncture while he's out there and now he's lost so much, but instead it's literally, yeah, you're going to run out of air in 10 minutes, but don't worry because you actually have more air than you. There's no reason to even go there. Like it, it just doesn't even make sense to go there. Uh, my note here was it's all a little bit silly. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean the um, the umbilical could have been severed. I mean the umbilical is such oh, yeah. like a huge a huge focal point of the episode that could have just been severed, and then he goes floating off, and it'll get him or something, you know? Yeah, no, totally, totally. Yeah, uh, and then you could have had Garth flying the ship, trying yeah. to rescue him. You have Rachel maybe putting on a makeshift suit to go right. and pull him in. I mean, there's all yes. there's all sorts of stuff. Yes. So they have a plan that they're going to do this, and there's a ladder that if Devin can hold, grab the ladder, he can pull himself around, and the ship won't crush him, and he does it. They come in, and they don't even take the ticking time clock to 10 seconds. Everything is okay and fine. Everyone is safe at 1 minute and 58 seconds on the clock. Right. And they hit the button, and everything works, and they're fine. Right. And that's it. There is no celebration. There is no, like, we have the rising oh, yeah. action. It just kind of ends. It just, music. Right. Right. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> well, I mean, I wonder, because you're right. I didn't really think about that. But, I mean, you're right. They keep introducing a crisis and immediately diffusing the crisis in the next line mm-hmm. of dialogue. Yeah. Like, not even waiting until like, the next act. They will diffuse it within seconds and i mean was this made this wasn't made for like kids like land lost or nothing right no no i mean it was in the sense that it was a, an adventure show but it was primetime television it was not a saturday morning kind of a thing because i could see that for like a land the lost like you know we don't want to you know we want to make the kids a little uneasy but we're gonna pull it back real quick so they don't freak land out land of the lost made you uneasy like they well that was just weird yeah yeah no there was there was one episode of land of the lost where um oh i can't remember the girl's name uh what was her name uh yeah but anyway the, the daughter the daughter the girl she, yeah she had this rod that she was holding and it hypnotized her and she had this blank stare and she's walking stiffly with this silver rod and i was watching it with my little brother at the time it was during the when they were doing reruns in the, the late 80s or whatever and so i'm i'm a teenager my brother is the right age for the show um <laughs> My sister had a um, a baton, a twirling baton, and it didn't have the, the ends on it, the plastic ends. So it was just a silver rod. And I saw right. it. I picked it up. This is a couple days later. I picked it up and started walking through the kitchen, very stiff with a blank <laughs> stare on my face. I freaked my brother out because <laughs> Land of the Lost affected him so much. I mean, they just had things like that. But they also had writers. They had DC Fontana. They had David oh, Gerald. Yeah. I mean, they had a yeah. stable of, of writers who were just, they were science fiction writers and TV writers. And here, uh, I, I'll, I'll give it right now. The credit, you want to know the credit for writer Douglas Hall? His entire IB, IMDb, I don't even have to look it up. It was this episode. That's it. And that's it. That's and his that's entire it. IMDb. Now, I have a longer IMDb than he does. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And and I haven't well, done anything yet. Like this is, but this guy has one thing on IMDb. And well, it's maybe this it episode. is kind of a thing. Like the producers kind of came together, like because like you do have things like the actual model is used within the episode. Mm-hmm. So maybe it is just a matter of we got to just look at what we have, cobble something together, and just you know, like we have one. I mean, it's one set. Well, two if you count the shuttle. Mm-hmm. It's very little blue screen. Just there at the end. I mean, it's a pretty... And everything, all the actual drama is happening off camera somewhere. It's like, oh, we have heard that this is happening over here. So it's probably a very cheap episode to produce. So maybe it was just, we just need something real quick that satisfies these little things. So you have uh, the special effects. When Mm -hmm. they're looking at the comet itself, it is literally a still. I don't know how they created it or where they got it. But it's like a, a blurry, bright light in the center with rocks off to the side. 
and then it's just a camera zooming in on a 2D image. Right. Like yeah. that's how they're giving the impression that they are moving toward the comet yeah. as they're looking in the, the little viewfinder. And they do have some moving uh, streaks outside the window that I don't know if that was a green screen thing or if they were just throwing tennis balls that glowed in the dark or whatever. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, man, I mean, it just... Uh, this one did not break the bank. Now, they didn't have a huge no. budget to begin with, but this one... Uh, the problem with this one is... There are some episodes that you watch and you're like, actually, that's intriguing. There's some intriguing stuff going on here. Could have been better, but it's intriguing. And and I would say, you know, an A-plus episode of the Star Lost is still going to be a, a C episode of Star Trek Next Generation. Oh, but, wow. Um, <laughs> but then, so you go from that to some episodes that you're just like, that is so dumb that I'm laughing. I'm laughing at this robot that looks like a wind-up Tomy robot from 1977 or whatever. And you're just like, this is hilarious. And then you have episodes where it's so bad. It's boring. Right. It, and, and, and that's kind of this episode. And that's the unfortunate thing that kind of, again, kind of keeps this from being a cult classic, I think is it's just not, it's not exciting one way or the other. Well, thank you for bringing me in on this one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't even get the, uh, the goofy robot, you know? Yeah. 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 And, Next episode, I have J.S. Earls coming on, and he's he's talking about uh, the beehive with me, and I have I, I will have to apologize to him because that's one that it's just bad. It's bad. Like they just it, get rougher as it goes. Like it starts off kind of like kind of oh, pretty, this is yeah, yeah. I would say kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah, so one of the notes I have is this one could have used a science advisor. They had Ben Bova for a while right. as science advisor. Clearly, he's not around anymore um, because I feel like he would have gotten a little bit. You know, a little bit of scientific accuracy when you're talking about the comet, and right. and maybe maybe instead of a comet, it could have been some or other sort of thing. I mean, my novel that I did, Ghosts of the Future. There's a reason I didn't actually have them go near a black hole, and that's because I really don't know what would go on around a black hole, right. and I don't have a science advisor, so <laughs> I'm going to make up something. It's just an anomaly that's out there, and it works in this way. I feel like that's what they should have done is it's right. some sort of weird thing, but instead it's a comet, but it's not really a comet. And we never even actually see the comet except for in that one weird viewfinder picture that they have. Right. Yeah. yeah it's, um, it's certainly a, it does feel like underdeveloped because when you, if you have like a one room episode where everyone's just in a room fighting, you kind of really got to bring, the character dramas and the interpersonal conflicts and it just kind of got you a little close and then it, it pulled it right back. I really do feel like this would have benefited from a really talented showrunner, you know, someone who understood sci-fi, someone who understood and, and Norm Kleinman, he, he went on record. He knows drama. He knows television he doesn't have to know sci-fi, you know, right. and um, and that's pretty clear here. Like he, they, they were going for the drama of the situation without the accuracy of the situation. And, right. Yeah. So some things that made me think about though was I do remember watching some episodes of different TV shows where they go outside the ship because they have to do some sort of repair. And this is you. You talked about well, the umbilical cord could have been severed. Um, they did an episode of Battlestar Galactica, and I remember getting really tense when I was a kid. Starbuck and Apollo are outside on the on the hull of the ship, and they have are they're using magnets to move around out there, and they're in spacesuits, and they have to fix something. And I, I can't remember all the details, but you know, one of them accidentally lets go for some reason or another, and you're like, oh my goodness, they're going to be lost in space forever, you know? And right. And the same thing with 2001 when they go outside the ship. And uh, and Hal creates the problem where um, I can't remember which which of the guys it is, but the guy who's not Kira Delay, you know, who goes flying outside the ship and and gets cut away from it, and it's just like these things, like you can create some tension with that kind of thing. Because can you think of a more horrible thing than being on a spaceship and losing yourself from the spaceship and floating away? Oh, yeah. um, I mean, just being on a spaceship it's pretty freaky to yeah, me, yeah, you know, true. that you're, you're just surrounded by a vacuum. I mean, 
like one hole breach and everyone implodes, you know. But I mean, yeah, they could have had they could have him him floating away. They could have had the radio cutting out, you know, interference from the comet or some junk, you know. And and it's like like because they're Amish, so mm-hmm. they shouldn't know how to uh, you know rewire a reactor or whatever. So they need that information, and if they can't get that information, that could have ratcheted up the drama. Yeah. So I, I just the, yeah, that whole idea and, and Dark Star. Have you ever seen Dark Star? Uh, so I see part of it a long time ago. Yeah, John Carpenter's uh-huh. first college movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which launched so many different people and, and yeah, Carpenter, Dan O'Bannon, right, right. Um, I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that came out of that that group of guys that were creating that that movie. But that that movie ends with them just floating out into space, <laughs> and they're just uh, and it's it's horrifying. Just the existential idea of is when when the spacesuit runs out of oxygen. Guess what? You're you're done. And didn't and, they do a Sandra Bullock movie like that too? Right? Yeah, Gravity. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And so that was another note that I have here. Um, yeah. Uh, and then I don't know if you ever saw the show Defying Gravity. It was <sighs> Grey's Anatomy in Space was how they no. kind of pitched no, no. it. It was uh-uh. created by the Grey's Anatomy people, uh, but it was a sci-fi show about um, going out into space. And it starts, I can't remember all the details, but it shows them training to go out into space. But then they finally get out there and they're like carrying something on their ship that they aren't aware of that's causing problems. But that was another one where they have to go outside and they have the umbilical and problems arise, you know, and you, it's just, there's so much you can do with that. Yeah. But well, and that they probably could have, if they started that sooner, right? Like it took them so long to mm. get out there. That could have been something that, you know, yeah, but that would require more blue screen, I guess. So, it's just unfortunate, again, this episode, if I'm making a list of the episodes you have to watch, this is not on, on that yeah. list at all. Yeah. So so my question to you, sir, as we are kind of wrapping things up here, but mm-hmm. um, you planning to watch any more? Uh, well, no. <laughs> but <laughs> with, a, with a caveat, okay? So I watch Finn Gooley on MeTV yeah, yeah. every Saturday night, mm-hmm. right? If this were a show that came on after Svengoolie, I would keep it on and let it play. I would. I would let it play and, you know, come in and out of it. But as far as going to hunt down all the episodes now, I will probably not do that. That's fair. Maybe one maybe one more. Maybe if you can if you can suggest to me the one with the robot, maybe I will go watch that one. <laughs> but uh <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's worth the price of admission just to see the robot. Okay. Um, no, I mean, I would definitely say the pilot episode is worth watching. There's some good stuff to that. And then there's an episode called the goddess Calabra that has, so there's some pretty decent acting going on there with, um, Oh, I can't remember their names now. Barry, Barry Morse, I think who was in space 1999 and, uh, John Colicos, uh, who's, just in tons and tons of things, but he was also Battlestar Galactica. He was Baltar in the original Battlestar Galactica. Oh, okay. Um, and they, when they're on screen together, you want to talk about how the guest stars become the main characters that there, you got two actors who know what they're doing, saying lines that are fairly serviceable. Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin wrote the screenplay for that one. Oh, all right. And is the only sci-fi writer that, that, uh, um, Ellison brought in who actually, managed to get something on the screen but wow um, yeah okay well that's fair that's fair so we already talked about the credit of the um (laughs) uh the writer it's just one credit and it's it's this uh we do need to talk about edward andrews you've seen him before yes you've seen him before huh he's in gremlins yes yep that was his last credit was gremlins but 16 candles Different strokes. Three's Company, BJ and the Bear, Quincy, Super Train, which is something I'm not going to do anything about the full series, Super Train. But as we get into other seasons, possibly with Up From the Ashes, the Super Train pilot episode would be something we might do something with. Um, 
he was a voice actor on four episodes of one of the most foundational shows for me as a child. And it's things you could see tendrils from this show in so many things that I'm even writing now, but that's battle of the planets. He was a voice oh. actor on, on a few episodes of battle of the planets, um, grizzly Adams, Bob Newhart, fantasy Island, one day at a time, love boat, Charlie's angels. I mean, this guy was, if it was a show in the seventies, he was probably on there. police woman, police story, the rookies, uh, wide world of mystery, magical world of Disney, wow. Alvin, the magnificent. I don't know what that is, but it sounds great. And then, of course, this episode of The Star Lost. Love American Style, four episodes of that. Uh, I mean, he goes way, way, way back. But, in fact, if I'm scrolling through his IMDb here, so many credits here. 1936 was his first credit. Wow. Well, I mean, and to his credit, he's definitely giving it his all. I mean, I yes. think that he, he was very magnetic to watch and, you know... I just I didn't always know where what I was supposed to be feeling about him or feeling again the music and the weird pacing and but yeah he definitely was a standout in the episode. So our director Ed Richardson was a producer on the Star Lost for yeah. the entire series. Uh, his directing credit is also limited to the Star Lost, but he at least directed four episodes of of the Star Lost. And we've talked about him before. He is our one of our littlest hobo connections. I'll explain that in a moment here. But okay. Um, and then Linda Sorensen as Doctor McBride. I feel like she also brought something to the screen yes. as well. Like she yes. again, you bring these two guest stars. They're coming in. I have a feeling they don't know what they're getting into. And once they sit down, they start doing their thing. There's two ways you can go. One is, oh, this is what I'm doing. Oh, okay. And you're going through the motions. They at least were trying. They're trying to emote. They're trying to present something to the viewer about what the uh, what's going on with with uh, with everything. But yeah. So she, if I can get her credits up here, man. Well, she is also a, a Littlest Hobo connection. So the Littlest Hobo is a Canadian TV show that I remembered as a kid. Don't remember much specifically about it, other than it's the concept is a. Uh, dog, a do-gooding do traveling dog that's traveling the Canadian countryside uh, from town to town and uh, helps people. Is this a 70s show? Too? Oh, 70s, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And 80s. And I found out there was also a, a version of it in the 60s as well. But um, yeah. But Linda Sorensen, she was not just in The Little Sobo, but she was also in, um, uh, where is that? Kyle XY. Oh, okay. She was an episode of Psych. I mean, she was working for a long, long while. She was in an episode of Masters of Horror, um, an episode of Dead Zone, an episode of uh, Anne of Green Gables, the animated series. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so she, oh, she was a main voice actor in The Adventures of Sam and Max, Freelance Police. Oh, okay. I know Sam and Max. Yeah, 36 episodes of The Busy World of Richard Scarry. So, working actor. This uh, The Star Lost did not shut down her career. <laughs> 26 episodes of The Adventures of Super Mario Brothers 3. And 13 episodes of ALF, the animated series. And two episodes of The Littlest Hobo. So what we found in almost every episode of The Star Lost, there is one degree of Littlest Hobo. And there is someone who is connected in one way or another to The Littlest Hobo. But that's partially because, um, I mean, they're both Canadian productions. Right. and yeah. Have you gone back and rewatched The Littlest Hobo? I have not. Okay. I have not. The closest I've come to going back and watching, rewatching the Littlest Hobo, is there's an episode of Corner Gas, which is a favorite show from my family. We love this show, but they did a whole episode riffing on the Littlest Hobo, where there's a a dog that came into town, and yeah, we already talked about does it need fixing, and the answer is yes. Yes. I, I feel like this could have used just a couple more passes from, you know, a writer's room or or something. Right. But, yeah. It felt very much put together by producers. I, I yeah. felt. So, all right. And you've said, are you going to continue watching? So I think from here, it's just time to close this episode down and 
let us know. Where can we find you? Where can people who are interested in finding your work, finding your books? Uh, you've already said Tubi. You can find your yes. You can, your, you can uh, go TV find movies the movies there. on Tubi. I mean, the books are all on Amazon. There are two Greg Mitchells in the system. One writes books about Richard Nixon, and the other writes books about monsters. So if you see Richard Nixon, that's not me. I'm the monster <laughs> guy. But uh, yeah, you can find me where I post the announcements is thecomingevil.blogspot.com. That's my my main. And then from there, it's got all the links to Twitter and Facebook. Okay. And, and, and we'll have a link to that in our show notes here. So, all right. Greg, thanks for joining me. Appreciate it. Well, thank and you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. I, my hope is always, no matter what kind of episode you're getting into, hopefully at least the conversation about it afterward. Is, oh, yeah. I mean, my, my wife watched it with me, and, and we had a lot, of, a lot of fun with it, a lot of talking about it. So, yeah. yeah. So, all right. Well, to everyone else, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, don't forget that you can go to facebook.com slash upfromtheashes, and that's where you can uh, get episode announcements and that sort of thing. We are winding down the series. We're coming down to the last few episodes of The Star Lost, but it does not mean we are done with coverage. I will be doing an episode about the novel that Ben Bova wrote very soon uh, called The Star Crossed. That's his uh, his book that he wrote that's kind of a sci-fi um retelling and parody of what happened with the whole show. And, um, it's, it, that would that sounds it, fun. It is fun. It is fun. Especially if you know the show and know the story behind it. And if you know about Harlan Ellison, there is a character that is absolutely Harlan Ellison. And, uh, yeah, it, it was a fun read. It's very seventies. So that's my, yeah. that's my in a nutshell. <laughs> it's a fun read, but it is very seventies. So, uh, there was a couple times where I stopped just to look up like, okay, who is this that they're talking about? Because they're dropping this name like I should know it. But I was not an adult in the 70s, so I do not know these people. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, so and we'll be probably talking about the graphic novel as well. So um, yeah, and then from there, who knows? I don't know. We'll take some time off and then potentially come back for a season two and talk about some other weird things out there. So But for now, don't forget, we will be talking about the Beehive next with J.S. Earls, another friend of mine who is a comic book writer, and we'll uh, we'll have fun talking about that. So until next time, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And as you are going through your metaphorical comet tale of life, uh, don't get caught in the cone of the cloud. And Godspeed. Godspeed.